marriage itself is always good. From a theological perspective, the institution, the understanding of marriage and its purposes is not dependent on our experience of it. Mm -hmm. It, It's always a good thing, particularly because of the way it points us towards eternity. We don't say that about singleness. We just get to, oh, you're singleness, you're having trouble, you're struggling, it's not going well for you. Well, your singleness is not good. Mm -hmm. And so the question I really wanted to answer is, is there something intrinsically good about singleness Mm. from a theological perspective that would mean that we're actually then having very similar but different discussions about the purposes Mm -hmm. of marriage and singleness theologically. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic Reformed Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss the newest and best books in the broader Christian tradition with some of the most respected seminary and college professors, pastors, theologians, authors, and more. We hope these book club episodes introduce solid theological works to those who want to read but don't know where to start or who to trust. You'll be introduced to authors you know and many others you don't from various theological traditions, but all under the broader tent of our shared creedal tradition. All of these authors and books help us to do the same thing. They remind us of how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast sponsored by Logos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today, we have Danielle Treyweek on, and we're going to be talking about her new book from IVP, The Meaning of Singleness, Retrieving an Eschological Vision for the Contemporary Church. And um, as I'm going to jump into this, uh, we're going to jump into this episode. I always read an endorsement from a guest we've had on our show before. So some of you guys would know that we've had on Rebecca McLaughlin a couple times to our show. So I'm going to read this endorsement that she says about Danielle's book. Drawing expertly on scripture and history, Trey Week offers a much needed salve to the wounds left by many contemporary evangelical understandings of singleness. Rather than seeing singleness as deficient, regrettable, or only valuable if definitely chosen, Treyweek helps us recognize the vital, hopeful, resurrection-oriented role that single Christians can and should play in the body of Christ. I highly recommend this book to anyone who is looking for a serious, orthodox, and scholarly exploration of the meaning of singleness. That's from Rebecca about Danny's book. And uh, so if you guys go to our show notes, there is a link to, again, IVP. That is the publisher of this book. And then, uh, of course, there's just basic other information on our show notes, how to find uh, Peter and myself uh, on social media, Twitter, Instagram, email. Also, if you uh, are having a hard time finding a local church near you, uh, to call home, we have a little church finder for you. You could click and type in your zip code and hopefully find a reformed or confessional church near your area. And then uh, just other information about our sponsors, our bridge builders, our website, other things like that. But uh, let's jump into this this conversation. I'll let Peter further introduce Danielle Treyweek. 
So yeah, we have Dr. Danielle or Danny Trewick. She is the founding director of the Single-Minded Ministry and an adjunct teacher at Moore Theological College, Sydney. She also serves as both the diocesan research officer and a member of the Archbishop's Doctrine Commission with the Anglican Diocese of Sydney, Australia. It's a pleasure you pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, guys. That was a lot of big words, wasn't it? All thrown into one bio. <laughs> that's, that's that's I like it though. It makes you sound um, very academic. It's, it's, <laughs> well, that's the point. <laughs> the, the, the bigger words you can use, the smarter you sound. Even if, like me, if you're not very smart, I can use big words to, to try to, to always, try to... yeah. It's always a trick. <laughs> exactly. So the the question I, I like to ask, and I um I think for our American audience, <clears throat> sometimes this this doesn't make sense, but I think. I think uh, what I think they would love to know, and where I, I'd be curious. So I know you are a complementarian, but you're a minister at the same time. So if you can describe, not like the hoops, but like um, just like describe you, like how, how you how you see those two together. I was expecting like a, a fun, you know, tell us about Australian wildlife question. Yeah. Um, right. Okay. No, I, you, that's even, what we do. We go for the jugular on the on, immediately, and then we go for the easy questions. Even Peter's right, okay. icebreaker questions are theological. No, okay. I, I didn't ask the theological one to a few other people, but for for this yeah. one, I was like, ah, like only reason why I did it is I heard this on another episode. I was like, huh, that's an interesting sure. question. question. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. Right it is it. an interesting question, and um. A little bit of context. I'm, as you mentioned, I'm from Sydney. I'm um, in the Sydney. I'm an ordained deacon in the Sydney Anglican Diocese. Aha. So yep. the Sydney Sydney Anglicanism is our diocese, which is just means our kind of region yep. is um, thoroughly evangelical, uh, unlike other some other Anglican parts of the world. So that's yep. probably one thing I should say. Um, I'm ordained as a deacon in the Anglican system. There's three orders of it of um, ordination there's deacon presbyter and then there's bishop um uh, in uh, sydney we're we're complementarian um yep. as a whole uh uh but we uh ordain women to the what's called the permanent diaconate that is women are able to be ordained to be deacons within the anglican diocese of sydney mm. but we don't ordain mm. women to be priests and we don't consecrate them to be bishops so in sydney yeah. At least to date, and I expect for some time, um, women are not um, ordained to be what you guys would call the senior pastor mm -hmm. of gotcha. the church. That makes, means, a, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I don't know if you know yeah. anything about the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, RPCNA for short, but they do the same thing. So they ordain uh, women deacons, but not elders or pastors, which I, I assume are like, relatively coterminous uh, like maybe not the same duties yeah. and stuff but relatively coterminous with what you're saying too that's right that's right and so that's why when I sort of see um, particularly evangelicals in America kind of pushing back against complementarianism saying but what about Romans 16 and you know Phoebe's oh, a deacon yep, and, yep. and I'm like yeah that's that's we love Romans 16 for that reason <laughs> yeah. within our context gotcha. so there's just a bit of there's a bit of cultural uh, denominational translation that needs to happen in order for that quote that question to make sense with an answer. Yeah. You see how you see how good that iceberg question was, Nick. That's we we uh, we figured out a a theological snafu on the front end, and now That's we can good. move on with our lives. That'll that'll <laughs> assuage a lot of our reformed audience yeah. for sure. So, and then my my icebreaker question was just going to be going with before we're recording is is Foster's really Australian <laughs> for beer? But 
we we already know the yeah. answer. To that. I'm not I'm not even surprised. It was a rhetorical question. If you're if you're not on video, um, what's currently happening is there's fumes coming out of Danny's ears after she heard. <laughs> well, this. no, actually, it's not fumes. It's more laughter. I dare you guys yeah. to come to Australia, rock up to a bar or a pub, and ask for a Foster's oh, and see get what happens. Oh, punched in the face, probably. And I would expect nothing. I would less do that for a hundred bucks, or <laughs> I would I would. That's that's worth a punch yeah. in the face, maybe. Tell what you guys come to Sydney. I'll take you out, and I'll 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 let you ask, and we'll see what happens. I'll report <laughs> yeah. back to your audience. Like, I don't know. That's good. Perfect. So our first real question. Now that we actually get into the interview, is let our listeners be, beyond the bio, beyond the profile, know a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work, and especially the single-minded ministry that I think you that you founded and run too. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, we've established I'm from Sydney. I grew up here. I've um, visited, traveled all sorts of places around the world, but I've always lived in Sydney. I grew up going to um, an Ang the local Anglican church, which was a really great Bible teaching church. Um, and, you know, my story as a Christian is that I've always been one. I've, I've kind of never known a moment when I didn't know and love Jesus. But of course, my knowledge and relationship with him has grown exponentially as as I've matured as well. Um, I studied uh, a four-year theology degree at Moore Theological College mm -hmm. here in Sydney. Um, I was ordained as an Anglican deacon. I worked uh, as a women's minister um, primarily in a church here in Sydney for almost seven years uh, before I finished that to somewhat unexpectedly go and study um, a PhD on singleness. Uh, during that PhD, I had heard that... Um, the author and speaker Sam Albury was coming to, oh, yeah. to Sydney. Yep. And I also knew that he had a new book at that time coming out around the same time called Seven Myths About Singleness. And I yep. thought, oh, we should try and run a one-off ministry conference on singleness. Hmm. Uh, and so we did, but we sold out of all of the tickets in early bird time, like the early Holy bird moly. period. And that was kind of a, oh, Oh, so, okay, people want this. And so what was it intended be to be to a one-off? Yeah. yeah, what was intended to be a one-off conference called Single-Minded um, has grown into an ongoing parachurch ministry. And um, our uh, mission is to produce biblical, faithful, encouraging mm -hmm. resources that equip Christians on God's purpose for singleness. Um, so we're not we're not a pastoral ministry. We're a resourcing ministry. So you can mm -hmm. check us out at singleminded.community. Awesome. Sounds like a book you just wrote, but we'll, we'll get there. A bit. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of the book you just wrote, see that bridge into that. Um, yeah. We're really good at this. I don't know if you can tell. Well, our, our, our slogan or motto is bridging the gap. So Brilliant. we're con constantly doing it. So where did the idea of this book come from? I know you're hinting at that. So maybe just a little bit more background on that and, and your life story going into it. And, uh, and then is there anything else? like it in the Christian market? Uh, a really interesting question because the question of is there anything else like it in the Christian market is kind of the whole reason I did a PhD. I, I did a PhD mm -hmm. to write a book, um, which sounds a bit insane, but I had been thinking yeah. about singleness theologically, pastorally for years. I mean, I'm never, I'm not married myself. I'm never married. I was working in ministry amongst lots of particularly women who were never married or divorced or widowed. Um, I was having lots of conversations with friends who were as well. And so I was keen to be thinking through singleness from a, a, a biblical um, and theological perspective. Uh, and 
um, one of my, I, I talk about in the introduction to the book that one of my, um, the professors, as you guys might call them at my, where I studied mm. at Moore College had been wanting to encourage me to do some writing on this with him for some time. We just couldn't make our schedules work to do that. And so when I finished up in my ministry position, I thought, all right, I'll take six months, I'll write this book, and then I'll look at what's coming next. Hmm. Uh, within about three weeks, the book had turned into, oh, I think I need to do a PhD. <laughs> and that that seminary professor turned, was became my supervisor, my doctoral supervisor. Hmm. Um, and the reason that transition from write a book in six months to do a PhD full-time in four years happened was because I thought, what book am I going to write? I'm just going to write another book on singleness. I might do it in a slightly different way, but is there anything unique or significant or different that hasn't been said that actually I could contribute to? And mm. to answer that question so that I didn't just produce another book on singleness that would sit amongst all the ones that are currently there, to answer that question, I thought I've got to do the hard work to work out if there is a gap, if there is something we're not actually thinking carefully about with singleness. And that's how I ended up doing a PhD um, and yeah, this book is the result of the PhD essentially. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah. So digging into to some of the meat of this and, and part one, and it kind of bleeds into part two, you, you trace, and this is also in the introduction, um, as well, you trace the, the history of singleness, um, or singles or kind of definitions as well. Mm -hmm. And what we think will be striking for some of our listeners, especially those who I think kind of like myself, come from 80s, 90s purity culture, um, which is kind of what we were raised and, and bred in, is just how differently understood singleness was throughout Christian history up until like 200 years ago, whatever, whatever, 100 years ago, whatever it may have been. So <clears throat> can you describe how singleness was viewed? I know it's a broad question, but kind of generally mm -hmm. speaking, both as it relates, because it's not the same for men and women, um, both as it re relates to men and then women, and then specifically so in the church. Okay, so broadly, first of all, and then focusing yeah. on the church. Um, yeah, that is, it's a very complicated question. Um, well, the first thing to say is that singleness itself is even a difficult thing to talk about because what does it mean? You know, yeah. the word single is only about five, 600 years old as an actual word that we now use. Um, and then that word gets loaded with all sorts of baggage across history and across time. So what I quickly worked out as I was looking historically is that, you know, before about the 14th, 15th century, you're not talking about singleness. You're talking about unmarriage versus marriage. You're talking about virginity. Um, you're talking about chastity and continence and abstinence. And so it's not just quite as simple as going back and looking at history, doing a word search on single and kind of going, oh, you know, it's actually very, it's drawing a lot of threads together. Um, essentially, when you look broadly at kind of Western history, um, there has been a lot more what we today call singleness. I'll just use singleness as shorthand. Sure. A lot more singleness in um, in everyday community than we might recognise. I think we kind of think, you know, we're just at this, this novel stage in human history yep. where suddenly there's all these singles around. Well, that's not the case, particularly when you take in life expectancy, you know, historically was much lower. You've got a lot more widows, perhaps less divorcees, but a lot more widows. You've got a lot more unmarried daughters in particular. So there's all sorts of surprises there when you go back and you look at it historically. 
but really from the time of essentially the Reformation and the Enlightenment on, um, Western culture has struggled with singleness uh, in all sorts of different ways. There were struggles with singleness before that too, but just in slightly different ways. Um, and particularly in the last three, four, 500 years, as our as our notions of what does it mean to be a human have changed, as sort of expressive individualism has come to the fore, that has really interacted with concepts of intimacy, romance, sex, um, that has influenced all of this. But then you've also got broader social and cultural changes. The Industrial Revolution can ch completely change the yeah. landscape of the family. Um, yeah. You know, the household was this kind of extended network of people who all worked and lived together to survive as a unit within a broader community. The Industrial Revolution took work out of the household into the factories mm. and the household became a refuge, a place to kind of escape from the dirty life of the factories and the world outside. And that changes over time mm. what we think about marriage and what's at the core of marriage and those. So it's just a massive social, cultural kind of um, unfolding. Yeah. And if any of your listeners want to chase down some of the historical trajectories there, an excellent book. Um, it's not a Christian book. It's a historical book called by an author called Stephanie Kuntz, C-O-O-N-T-Z, um, and it's called Marriage, A History. And then the subtitle I love is How Love Conquered Marriage. And huh. She really traces through mm. that our conception of marriage is kind of being about romantic love and sexual fulfillment is quite novel. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. So that's broadly the Western world as a whole. Totally. And, of course, that then has really significant impacts for the way that Christians and the church have understood singleness and marriage. Um, for most of that time, I think the church kind of was caught up in that and trying to work out, all right, how do we, how do we think about this theologically? How do we Christianise what's going on in the world and sort of make sure that we're not just in step with the world but actually understanding this through a, a Christian lens? Mm -hmm. You know, to varying degrees, that was successful. Totally. I think in the last 60, 80 years in particular, that has shifted where the church is now much more kind of how do we how do we push back and oh, make yeah. ourselves completely different to the world? Yeah. Post-sexual revolution, things, things changed. That's right. And that was really important and really significant. But what I don't think we realize generally as reformed Christians today is actually how much how much of the assumptions of the world around us is deeply embedded in a lot of our thinking on these things in mm. ways that we actually just really struggle to be aware of at all. Hmm. Yeah. Cause it, before next question, it, and you talk about this in your book there, there's kind of a pendulum. It was um, in varying ways. Singleness was like, like chastity or, or virginity was like, was put on a pendulum. It was like, those are, those are real Christians. And then yep. today, and again, we'll talk about, why this happened but it's like the swung like the completely opposite way where yeah. it's no we gotta singleness is like everything that's wrong with the church we have to make sure that everyone's married and it, it yeah. seems more reactionary than it is theological yeah it's been um it's i think it's been a very significant overcorrection that's kind of been happening to varying degrees for about five, 600 years. Um, but you're right, it is like a pendulum where we kind of just go from one extreme of the arc to the other or one end of the arc to the other. Mm -hmm. And we we 
when you look at Christian history, church history, it's it, it struggles. That pendulum struggles just to kind of hang nicely <laughs> yeah. in the middle, right in the middle. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I and so that you know, in one sense, I'm a bit of a pessimist by nature, and so I look at that and go, "Oh, what's the hope? Like, what, what, how on earth do we have any confidence that that's ever going to happen?" But then I look at a passage like 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul has absolutely no problem saying marriage is awesome, singleness is awesome. Those two things are true at the same time. Let's get on with faithfulness, guys. So, you know, that's I think that's the call that we need to hear. I was hoping and waiting for at some point in the conversation that you would bring up that verse, too. Um, that was good. Wait, bring up the Bible in this? I'm not sure we can do that. The, that that specific part, what Paul says, because that's <laughs> just very good to underline that you you're saying both are good. Yep. And not one or the other, or one yeah. is better than the other, but like both have a biblical basis and a biblical reason for being what they are. Yeah, you're not you're I, not championing uh, singleness to the point where it's a detriment to married people. No, and you're not saying. Uh, yeah, just be single, uh, only be single temporary before you can, you have to get married someday either. Yeah. 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 That's right. I so, mean, the, I mean, hashtag spoiler alert here, but the book finishes <laughs> with me saying both marriage needs singleness to yep. be marriage yep. and singleness needs marriage to be singleness. And I, I picture them like two artworks hanging on a wall designed to accompany each other. And if you kind of take one away then you you lose the ability to see the beauty. You know, if you take singleness mm. out of the picture, you lose the ability to mm. see the unique lighting and texture and shape and colours going on in the picture of marriage. But if you have singleness on wall, you take marriage out, then you mm. lose the same thing there. We act, they're yeah. actually designed to hang next to each other to bring dignity and significance and value to the other as a matching but contrasting yeah. pair. Yeah, and it makes you think of the um, us as Christians are members of the body of Christ, and so we're all different types of body parts, different um, things we bring to the table, different attributes, um, and so single people are vitally important and helpful mm-hmm. to the church. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot more uh, things you can do. I mean, there's more time to this conversation that you would be able to echo just um, being able flexibility to do things, evangelism and things like that. Um, so, and then also the, your, your part of your beginning, your part of your answer to Peter's question on parts one and two or part one of your book is really good. I thought it was very thoughtful because you really start out the book with a historical perspective laying out where the term singleness comes from, where, like, why do we think the certain way we do? And then you're making some really good, strong links with even Carl Truman, who wrote an endorsement in your book, even talks about with expressive individualism. Mm. So I really like that. I'm a huge history, history nerd. I know Peter enjoys that as well. So it's good laying out the context of your book, where you're coming from with like, how did we get here where we are Mm. laying out like, uh, centuries before how singleness was looked at, uh, the percentage of women that were single, uh, how singleness was viewed towards women versus men in both Europe and in America. Mm. So very thoughtful. I, I just want to say this very thoughtful starting out the book that way. Taking, Thank you. Thank yeah, you. before you, before you get to where we are in recent, you writing yeah. a pen, 
like let's take it back a few centuries well that's right because we're all products of our own history you know yeah. i think we forget that that actually we are who we are you know culturally communally sociologically because we actually have a history that mm-hmm. has informed you mean the church didn't start 100 years ago with billy graham no i'm sorry i need to break that news to you no <laughs> that is a frustrating thing as as an american i you see a lot of things that like americans think that if it because we're History's a relatively only... new country, yeah. In the in the in the broad context of things, Americans are pretty new, and so we think we do things better because we're new. Or yeah, or... Australians are new too, but we've got the long history of the British this is true. Empire yeah, really... behind us. So... Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you got pr- imprisonment behind you. Um, but yes. yeah, that's... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Americans like if we think it's if it's before three hundred years ago, it almost is like irrelevant. It didn't yeah. even exist. So it's yeah. kind of frustrating. But that's God's that's country what... didn't exist before seventeen seventy six. Yeah. So it's 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 good to hear some historical landwork or groundworks. As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face education coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www.wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So. Um... We haven't really uh, laid out a um, clear definition yet. I know you have explained it a little bit, but a, a clear definition. Um, we waited to get some background first, so we laid out that, especially mm-hmm. the hor- historical part. Now, what are some of the most common misunderstandings, misconceptions that you've encountered yourself or in the literature regarding singleness so um, not maybe even not directly, but something you perceived um, as it's currently understood in um, both conservative and liberal cultures, progressive cultures as well. They're not yet married peoples. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the first thing that um, I deal with when I sort of turn to look at the contemporary landscape. I spent the first year of my PhD basically reading everything I could find on singleness from a Christian discursive context listening to every talk and podcast I could, because I wanted to make sure I, you know, I obviously came in with my own 
assumptions. I wanted to make sure I wasn't working from those assumptions, but was actually working from the evidence in front of me of what we actually are saying and thinking and believing about singleness. And so from that, I drew out um, chapters three and four in the book are basically me going, all right, this is the landscape from what I can see. Um, And there's a whole lot of things caught up in that. Things like just from a very basic linguistic point of view, singleness is you know, automatically set up as what I call, and others are called a deficit identity in mm. that, you know, when when someone introduces me to you guys, they would say, oh, this is Danny. She's she's single. She's not married. Mm. But they would never introduce one of you guys to me saying, oh, you know, he's married. He's unsingle. Mm. That's just, you know, <laughs> we, we, yeah. we define the, the single person by the fact oh, that well, they're, they're not, not a husband or they're well, not a wife. Not. But the married person is never defined by the fact that they are, you know, sing- they're no longer single. Yeah. Um, now, I don't want to overstate the problem here because I'm not sure that there's just an easy linguistic solution that makes this all go away. And in fact, you know, mm. going back to what I said before about the spoiler of the end of the book, actually, I think it's really important that the single person is seen to be someone who's not married because that's the definition of singleness is that you're not married and marriage is that you're not single. Like ultimately Mm -hmm. we need that contrasting definition, but embedded in the way that we talk about at the moment is a sense of deficiency. The single person is unsomething, is Mm -hmm. not something. And that just, you know, automatically we're starting with a very uneven playing field. Um, but then from that builds all sorts of other things such as, you know, it's not just that singleness is more rare than marriage, but then that becomes it's less normal than marriage. You know, we're talking about normality, which has a kind of moral trajectory built into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, abnormal becomes aberrant yeah. and aberrant becomes deviant. The standard to which everyone should want to achieve. Dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then, you know, singleness is not just, well, you, you should really, the goal should be marriage. But, you know, as if you read the book, you'll see one very, very well-known contemporary leader talks about how singleness is an assault on marriage. Oh, yeah. Um, and single <laughs> people are dangerous. You yeah, know? I watched I watched the video that you uh, you posted on Twitter and I was like, oh, this is... It's pretty, is, it's pretty bad. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. I know single people who were sitting in the audience listening to that and yeah, it was pretty bad. But, um, but then, you know, there's also a sense in which we see singleness because it's abnormal, it's not normative, it's deficient as an unfulfilled life, Christian mm. life. And that's a lot to do with the way that we um, sort of make uh, romance and sex as idols, I think broadly in our thinking, but particularly when it comes to marriage, mm-hmm. when we've kind of recentered friendship now is now kind of centered in marriage rather than being marriage being part of a broader understanding of what friendship can and should be. Um, and so the single person is kind of sentenced, single Christian in our context is sort of sentenced to live this impoverished life of not being the most fulfilled person relationally that they could ever be. Um, it's all pretty depressing, guys. Um, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, it's hey, not an easy couple of chapters like we, to read. It's like we reformers say we need to love before the gospels. We need to be depressed before we're made happy again. This is yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. The yeah. guilt before the grace. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you, you do need to know, yeah, the landscape that we're in. Yeah. Or else you're kind of be, you're gonna be blindsided by some of this stuff, or just not take it take it really realistically. And I think a lot of married Christians would be really well in like saying, oh, I want to better understand this. The reality yeah. is you probably don't 
unless you've had the conversations with your Christian friends and they've been willing to be really vulnerable with you about all of these kind of things that they see. I think a lot of married people, it, I think quite understandably in lots of ways, just kind of a bit ignorant to the reality of what it's like to be unmarried in the Christian church today. Mm. Even little things like have a look around and see where people are sitting in your church. Yeah. You know, I, I, this is no, um, this is not meant to be any sort of passive aggressive swipe at my own church family. Cause I love them dearly. Um, I spent Easter Sunday sitting by myself hmm. in church. We were in pews. And so I was literally alone in a pew because of the way that family units kind of all group together. Um, and it's, it's, it's not just what we teach. It's then actually how that translates into how we relate to each other um, and how we, struggle to love and care for each other and meet each other's needs. Hmm. Yeah. And, and along, along these lines too, and, and something Nick said kind of perked it up for me as well. Cause this is um, you put into words something that um, I like, I didn't know I thought until like you, you said it, I was like, Oh, actually that is kind of what I thought before um, that it's like singleness is some like divine vocation. It's like, okay, now you have, room to do things that a married person couldn't do so it's it's kind of defined by like what you can do and married people are like oh you're married so that's that's great it's less so like oh okay now you can do stuff um and so their their uh singles are now unencumbered and so they can do more stuff uh so in other words they can totally devote themselves to ministry and that's how singles is often measured it's like oh you're single how much now are you serving at the church and married people aren't asked the same question at church is like, Oh, like, Oh, you got a wife or husband or kids or something. That's, that's how you serve the church. Um, it's too often viewed as special gifting. And you talk about this a whole time in your, in your book, rather than viewed as a good in its, in its own as being mm. singles. Can you describe what you mean by this, especially as it relates? And this is where I think you get to like kind of the eschatological understanding of singleness mm. and how this relates to the purpose of singleness too. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of the instinct. When I said before, I sort of thought, I think there's something, a book that to be written that hasn't been written, what is it? Um, my instinct really was twofold. It was, first of all, that I think eschatology has been overlooked in this conversation. We'll get to that oh, yeah. in a moment. But It's not just uh, last things. No, that's right. Um, but the other part of that instinct was the only kind of positive theology we tend to have about singleness in the contemporary church is what I call instrumental. It's singleness is good so long as you're living the good single life, so long as you're doing with it what you should, so long as you feel good about it, or so long as other people feel good about your singleness. It's it's very instrumental. And when, if I'm struggling with my singleness, if I'm not, you know, spending all my free time in serving in ministry, if other people look at my singleness and go, oh, I'm not so sure that this is actually she's doing well, then singleness is seen as tragic. It, 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 we can't, there's nothing that we can say that's intrinsically good about it. Now, this is different to how we think about marriage because, you know, we all know how complex and hard and difficult marriage can be. And we all tragically know how actually terrible some marriages are, how yeah. abusive and awful they are, and how incredibly painful the experience of some people in marriage can be. But even as we recognize the kind of, you know, quote unquote, messiness of marriage as it's lived out in our communities, and we can look at that and go, that's a bad marriage. Marriage itself 
is always good. From a theological perspective, the institution, the understanding of marriage and its purposes is not dependent on our experience of it. Mm -hmm. it it's always a good thing, particularly because of the way it points us towards eternity. Yep. We don't say that about singleness. We just get to, oh, you're singleness, you're having trouble, you're struggling, it's not going well for you. Well, your singleness is not good. And so the question I really wanted to answer is, is there something intrinsically good about singleness mm. from a theological perspective that would mean that we're actually then having very similar but different discussions about the purposes mm -hmm. of marriage and singleness theologically? And that's where the eschatology came in. Mm -hmm. I had a bit of a hunch because of things that I had learned along the way that, oh, actually thinking about the fact that Matthew 22 in eternity, none of us will yep. be married to each other. Yep. Maybe that actually has some significance for how we think about singleness now. Yeah. So I thought, all right, I'm going to tease this out. What I hadn't expected, and I'm still a bit blown away by, is the fact that our Christian ancestors for 1,500 years were all about that. They mm. were all about the eschatological significance of singleness. And we just have no... I had someone who had done some deep thinking about singleness beforehand had no concept really of just how thoroughly eschatological their theology of singleness actually was and how much we just have lost it from our collective memories as Protestants today. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful before, before Nick gets to his question, it was, and like I said, I had to admit this is, even though this, I, I wouldn't have like kind of put into words, some of the stuff that you had that you had described, it was something I had realized when I talked to my married friends, right? Like when I thought about myself, it's like, oh, like I, I don't. That's not my first question that comes to my mind. But when I talk to single friends, or I, I think about saying this, like I, I I tend to think of the. I mean, which can be true. I'm not saying it's it's false, and you can say the same thing about married people as well. It's um, well now they can totally develop devote themselves to the Lord, and and they can use their singleness. Versus, I I tend not to think about that, and I'm not saying it's it's bad or good. It's just like it's it's where my mind goes, and yeah. it was really which helpful. Which is actually, I think, I think it reveals to us that we actually it's actually a diminishment of marriage. This is one of the things that troubles mm. me when we talk about you know singleness is good because it lets you be really devoted to God, like. But isn't that what marriage is meant to do too? <laughs> like it's exactly like what we, Paul says in Ephesians five, precisely what he says. Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so I actually think that unintentionally we're diminishing the the beauty and significance of marriage when we kind of say that singleness is about complete devotion to God. Because I hope married people are being devoted to God by living oh, yeah. faithfully to him yeah. in their marriages. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Totally. Yeah, and you were talking about, going back to what you were talking about um, with relationships and sex as idols, is so obvious in our culture today. Um, we're, I mean, you see, you see that stuff all over, um, you know, TV and everything. So uh, relationship, it's almost like culture's almost telling you, you'll be happy if, and when X, Y, Z happens, uh, you'll be happy if, um, if this sexual fantasy is, is fulfilled, you'll be happy when you get married, but you're, you're not happy right now. And it's kind of giving you that implicit or explicit, you know, suggestion. And I think it's so helpful that you've helping remind us and recenter us on that. Our identity 
as Christians is in Jesus Christ. That's it. Um, it's not with your identity is fulfilled with somebody else, you know? So there's a, that God shaped hole in our hearts. It, our identity is only in Christ and yeah, whether you're a soul sick, partner, somebody who completes you, somebody who like yeah. makes you who you really are like wholeness. And that's, mm. that's for a single person and a married person. Your identity is in Christ. So mm. I, I think when you were talking about that stuff, it kind of, it goes back to what are you worshiping? Who are you worshiping? Yeah. Um, yeah. so, um, I wanted to, you know, put that out there before this question. So if you can remember before I start talking Peter's last question, which was probably a few minutes ago, uh, how does this view of singleness also affect how we view marriage? I think you're, you ended up answering his question, hinting at that. Uh, we think you're right in stating our view of singleness will inevitably affect our view of marriage of, of course, and vice versa comparison and contrast for sure. How does uh, one affect the other, especially in the church? Mm. Um, how does one affect the other? Well, I think I want to go back to what, you know, I said earlier, which is I'm firmly convinced that actually they both, they both marriage and singles need each other to make sense of what God's purposes and plans for both of them are. Mm. in this world as we look to the next world. So if we've only got one of the portraits hanging on the wall and maybe we've got the other one sort of stored in the back room somewhere, we're actually missing out on understanding actually the, the full picture of God's plans and purposes for this creation as it moves towards new creation. Um, now that's from a, a theological perspective. What then does it mean on the ground in relationships? Well, I think it means that we actually have need of each other. You know, I I need married people in the church to point me towards the incredible, you know, as I look at your marriages, I should be able to get a glimpse of what's coming. I, I need to see your marriages in action. I need to see husbands and wives loving each other um, in the way that scripture calls that to happen so that I can see, have my vision fixed on, oh my gosh, that wedding when we together, together as mm -hmm. the church are going to be married to our bridegroom. We're going to be one flesh with him, whatever that's going to mean. Yeah. Um, you know, you, I need married people within our midst to actually keep my eyes fixed on that. But I would argue, and I have argued in the book, that actually you guys need single Christians in your church communities to point you towards a different aspect of what actually it is going to look like for us to live as embodied resurrected mm. people in the new creation, which is that you guys won't be husbands mm -hmm. in eternity. Now I know that there's all sorts of things that come up with that. What does it mean your relationship with your wife on earth is going to be like, is it going to be as if it's just never, I, I have no idea. Except <laughs> The to Bible say, doesn't give us many answers on this stuff. No, but what it does say mm. is it's, it's going to be perfect. Like yeah. we can just trust. It's going to be better, whatever fact. that means. It's going to be whatever better. Whatever it is, it's going to be better. Um, so because none of us, you know, you will be relating to your wives in eternity the way that you relate to me as a sister in Christ. And so as I relate to you guys now as brothers in Christ, as a single woman, um, 
you ought to be able to get a glimpse of, oh, this is what it's going to be like for eternity, but much, 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 much better. Um, and that's why we actually have need of each other because mm. the picture is incomplete. As you know, I don't want to diminish the incredible significance of what it is going to be for us to be relating to God in mm. eternity, face to face, perfect presence. It is going to be beyond our imagining. Mm-hmm. But the icing on the cake is that we're also going to be relating to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. this is part of the joy of what we've been created for is relationship with him and relationship with each other. And so I think singleness is able to give us a particular insight, um, a particular longing for what that wonderful joy is going to be mm-hmm. as well. That's, um, I don't normally say this on our show. I think I've said it a few times, but I'll, I'll tell our audience um, really pause here and then rewind maybe five minutes and then listen to that again. Cause it's um, I, I can see some people looking at this book as like, Oh, she's going to like try to pit singleness over marriage and it's going to be better. And she's just reacting to the church's reaction. Um, but I would really, really encourage people to to really give what she just said a listen. Cause it is, mm. it is, it is vitally, vitally important. Um, and you opening up scripture again, and it reminds me too, and this, slightly changing the question, although it still has to, to a, a lot to bear. You talk about the eunuchs in, mm. uh, as Jesus is talking about the eunuchs and how I think it's been, you talk about this in your book, how it's been misunderstood today. And then a little bit of its relation to like the side A, side B, um, gay Christian, not gay Christian or whatever it may be. You made a, a really interesting connection between that passage and like the gift and all this stuff. So maybe you can flesh this out a little bit for audience. Sure. The Unix passage always makes me a bit nervous. Um, (laughs) Partly because I I'm pretty aware that I haven't fully understood it. Uh, And also there's been some work and I do reference this in the book. I don't go into detail. I just reference it. There's been some work by a few scholars that actually I think needs to be taken more seriously that might point to the fact that we possibly have had some pretty fundamental misunderstanding or misexegesis of this yep. passage. So yep. Yep. I'll let people follow that up themselves if they want. I think it's quite interesting. But it's really fascinating, you know, the Unix passage has had very little historical focus um, in the sense of when you go back and you look, it hasn't been one of the key passages. I'm not saying it's absent, but it hasn't been one of the key passages. They haven't like state their claim on like, this is where we're going to put someone this on. Actually, it's, it tends to be more Matthew 22 and no marriage in heaven. That was much more significant in the early church than Mm -hmm. the eunuchs passage. Um, It's really been in the last 10, 15 years. I have personally seen Matthew 19 and the eunuchs really coming up. Um, And in one way, that's excellent because, wow, let's, you know, if, if we've been not, if we've been overlooking a passage of scripture, shame on us. Let's grapple with this. Um, But I also think that there has been a little, um, I think, unintentional um, convenience about how that passage is being used today. Maybe, you know, what's going on there is um, a discussion about, again, the discussions about singleness come out of discussions about marriage. It's a discussion (laughs) about eunuchdom that comes out of the discussion about marriage and divorce and remarriage, you know, Mm -hmm. and so, the disciples say, well, gosh, if divorce is really off the cards and I'm going to be stuck with this this woman 
or she's going to be stuck <laughs> with me and there's yeah. no options here. It's better for a man not to marry. Um, and so the, the question being asked is, is it better to stay unmarried or never get married than to get married given the context of divorce? And then Jesus kind of, you know, has, as he sometimes does, you're like, oh, can we just, Jesus, give us to us plain. He starts talking yeah. about eunuchs. Um, and not only does he start talking about eunuchs, he starts talking about three different sorts of eunuchs. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I think I have a concern about about the contemporary use of this passage is that um, the, the, it's only one of the eunuchs that Jesus talks about that gets any mention. The other two kind of remain invisible. You know, he says there's three different sorts of eunuchs. There's some mm -hmm. who are basically circumstantially that way. There's some who contextually become that way. Those who are born that way, those who are made that way by men. And then there's some who choose to become eunuchs, to make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Um, I think if we're going to take this passage seriously and it's, it's messaging about being unmarried, being single, then we need to recognize that there's all sorts of different reasons why people might be single mm -hmm. rather than just because they've committed just waiting themselves for to or singleness. Whatever. Yeah. Or because they've committed themselves to singleness lifelong. And yeah. this <clears> is <throat> one of my concerns. You know, in some ways I'm so encouraged that my work is coming at a time I get to kind of hop onto the wave that's starting to come through it. We're starting to talk about singleness in ways that I think we haven't for a very long time as the church. The wave is kind of coming and I'm really pleased to kind of, I've never ridden a wave on a surfboard in my life, but I'm glad to kind of be riding this wave in a little bit and hopefully. Neither have I, so we're it. in the same boat. <laughs> informing it a little board. bit. <laughs> but I'm also concerned that, with the present discussions we're having about singleness, that we're creating these different orders of singleness that are giving different significances to different sorts of singleness. Yeah. And that's kind of what was going on in the early church that was a bit troubling at times too. And mm -hmm. my research and work They got more heavenly really... rewards, or they're more faithful, whatever it is. Yeah. And what's the difference between we've got this coming up as a seminar with single-minded in a month's time what how do we understand this notion of choice versus circumstance in singleness in light of god's sovereignty hmm. you know I, i'm just there's so much of a theological framing conversation to have here and the unix passage i'm a bit concerned is not being used as comprehensively not used it's not being understood and applied yeah. as comprehensively as it should be yeah but I also am a bit uncertain about the passage in lots of ways. And so I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure that I have all the answers of what totally, that yeah. is meant and to be. The reason why I asked that too is the, the way you describe it is that I think some sometimes it's not even used as an agenda, but it's almost used as like, well, I made this because I'm I'm really faithful. Yeah. And maybe yeah. you're not as faithful as I am because I could be pursuing same-sex relationships, but I'm yes. choosing the really faithful eunuch options. I'm being a very faithful single and you have opposite sex attraction. And so your singleness is maybe a little less um, faithful or a gift as mine is. Yeah, that's, that's exactly spot on. And I must admit, I have a real heart at that point for the countless, um, particularly never married women who mm -hmm. would love to be married, but 
don't feel like they how did you know the the kind of evangelical leaders tell us well you really should be married and people women like me have grown up going well I'd love to be <laughs> god can you like where who's the guy where's the guy um and you know those women have been so faithful yeah. in remaining in their singleness, even as it's been a struggle to them. They've been so faithful in not going, well, forget it. I'm just going to go out and find myself a really lovely, wonderful man who's not a Christian and mm. marry him. And so as we have these discussions about those who have chosen lifelong singleness, I want to celebrate that. Totally. I want totally. to honour that. But I don't want us to kind of diminish the faithfulness yeah. of not just the women, but the men as well, who have been progressing through their singleness in ways that they had not anticipated or had not wanted, but have been faithful in it and are just as faithful as those who have chosen it as, as a kind of lifelong path. Yeah, no, that's, I, I love that section. And I think it's really helpful for those who say, no, like I want to be married and, and it's not like I, like I want to be single, but like that, those, that person over here or that person's telling me that they've chosen the single life and that they're totally devoted and they're, they're like, it, they may not say it to me, but I, I can, I can sense it that they're, they, that they feel like, well, they're following God's will and God's been very clear with them about their singleness. But why isn't God being clear about, about my singleness? Cause yeah, I know we have yeah. listeners who are in this camp and so, like, I want, I want them to know that like that this, this, this part of this book that I think they're, they're really going to um, feel at one with. Yeah. And I mean, the end result is I want, all of us who are single, regardless of what our circumstances are, whether it's we've been never married or we're single again, to, to understand that from God's perspective, I am very firmly convinced that actually all singleness has dignity. Our call is to live it out faithfully in whatever the context or circumstances uh, that is, that actually the sing our singleness, its dignity and worth and significance is not dependent on how we feel about it. It's actually dependent on the purposes and plans that God has for it. And our call is to live responsibly in faith to those purposes and plans. Mm -hmm. Quick little plug for our own podcast here. If you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work, you can go to our show notes, to our Patreon page, as well as our Spotify donations page. If you want to make a recurring donations, they're either 15 or $20 a month or a single donation. You can also do that as well. Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all, all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and, and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have. And we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be as we all work towards our mission of bridging the gap to reform Christian theology. Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder. What I think I'm hearing too is if you're single, don't feel like you're putting a pause on your sanctification until you get married. Yeah. You are going through sanctification as a single person. And you're not waiting to get more sanctified. You are right. Precisely where God has you right yes. now. God, yeah. Yeah. God has given each of us. I mean, what a gift. He's given us the Holy Spirit to dwell inside each of us. It's not like that only gets activated when you get married. Yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, God, he, the Spirit is at work 
in all of our contexts and circumstances, in all the arenas of our lives, in all of our relationships. Now, I absolutely think that there is there can be differences when you're living with someone full-time oh, yeah. as husband and wife, that you're going to be confronted with your sin in ways that you're not if you're single and living alone. But let me assure you, oh, yeah. as someone who is single and living alone, there's ways that I'm confronted with my sin <laughs> oh, yeah. that you guys aren't. Yeah. And there's yeah. ways that the spirit is actually mm. working in me to make me more like Jesus. Mm. And we should be rejoicing about that rather than kind of saying, well, you really, you know, one one author, and for, I haven't read a lot of his stuff, but I've heard very, very good things about him. And so I vicariously have a lot of respect for him. But there's mm. this one line in one of his books where he talks about, if you want to become more like Jesus, I can't imagine any better thing to do than to get married getting married mm. is the preferred route to becoming more like him. I'm sure he didn't intend it <laughs> just the, to the sound irony. like what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah the but... irony just kills you with that statement. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. So I think yeah. we can have confidence in God's spirit that he's going to do the work he's promised to do, whether yeah. we're married or single. Yeah. And then uh, a short little question before for Nick's, um, for Nick's last question too. And, and I like how you put this. It's, the the church, like more specifically with the church, is not, it's not. Yes, it has families, but but it's not exclusively just families as part of the church. It's people part of the family of the church. And you yeah. talk a lot with um, and I'm pretty sure I, I, I this is where I got you. You read a lot of Stanley Hauerwas, and mm. his his understanding of kind of the ecclesial ecclesiological implications of some of these things too. So we just describe family as church, not just families as part of the church. Yeah, yeah. So Halvas is one of the four theologians I engage with in one chapter, and he, he's he and Oliver O'Donovan both have yeah. eschatological visions of singleness, which just excites me. Um, so I love his stuff. I love really. He's a he's a hard thinker to wrestle with because he's just so expansive. But mm. um, but to the actual question itself, yeah, I think I think we we can sometimes without realizing it have the starting assumption that the church is kind of a club for families. It's where families get together and do the church thing and others are welcome to come. You know, they're part of the community, but it's like church is an affiliation of families. Um, you know, one author kind of talks about how, you know, the church is about, the you know, a kind of association of families, including single person families. I'm like, at that <laughs> point, what what even is that? We're just kind of then saying the church is just an association of lots of different units who kind of happen to come together and do the same thing at the same time. Mm. Um, but that's actually not what I see in scripture. I see actually church is a new family and not, it's not just a new family it's a primary family it's mm -hmm. an internal family now mm -hmm. that does not mean that our our household families our nuclear families our biological yeah. whatever you want to call them does not mean that that is diminished of significance no, not at all. or unique value or unique purpose it is not me saying down with the family nothing like that but when we come together and we think about who we are together in Christ when you are at church with your family, your wife, your primary, not just when you're physically gathered on a Sunday in church, but really what it means to be a member of the church is that your wives are foremostly and firstly your sisters in Christ. Mm -hmm. um, they are your sisters in Christ who are your wives. Mm -hmm. And so there is a very important relational mm -hmm. distinction there. 
but the enduring relationship is going to be sisters in Christ. And yeah. so when we gather together, we're actually gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Mm. You know, Jesus' prayer for us in John 17, his prayer for his disciples is that we would be one as he and the Father are one. Mm-hmm. You know, that is who we are. We are one people together united in him. Which is, and I mean, so, a lot more one than any marriage is ever going to be one. And it's not well, to say that marriage right. is bad, yeah, but it's that's it is more that's, one than you yeah. can even imagine. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, to think what would it mean for us to be one with one another? How is this demonstrated in in what how we think about church, in what we do at church, in how we relate to each other at church? Um I think that's a real, real challenge for us, particularly in a contemporary moment where so much of life is kind of splintered into our little private households and relationships where marriages have been privatised. They kind of happen between behind the closed door and the white picket fence rather than really being part of what we do publicly and communally with each other. Um, and so there should never be a point at which singles in those who aren't married in church families feel like they're guests. No, no, no. This, you know, this is as much my family as it is your family. I belong here as much as you do. Um, so I welcome you as much as you welcome mm-hmm. me. Yeah. Um, that's you're not just tag alongs. Yeah, you're, yeah you're, that's the joy of being together. Yeah. Totally. I love it. I can, I can see in a message to married people that you're going to uh, love well, for, for, uh, I'm thinking about my position. I'm, I'm going to be able to love my wife better by knowing primarily she's my sister in Christ. Mm. And, but also not you, forget that she's wife. Yeah. It's yeah, like, you don't have to forget that wife. she's your wife, but yeah, that's, but I'm going to love her even better as my wife, knowing fundamentally, primarily she's my sister in Christ. I'm going to be able yeah. to have it eaten. I don't know if easier is the right word, but more of a organic way scripturally to uh treat her as my wife as christ treats the church and knowing you're my sister in christ just as much as my wife is my sister in christ yeah and that's you know when you think about all those passages in scripture we need to take them very seriously where there are instructions of how husbands and wives are to love each other are Mm -hmm. to serve each other the basis of that is because they are one in christ and so because you're one in Christ, you're brothers and sisters in Christ, and you have this very specific type of relationship with each other, live out that specific type of relationship in these ways because you are primarily united in Jesus together. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, again, I want to emphasize what you guys have been saying. I'm not saying, and I, I know you're not hearing me, but for your yep. listeners, yep. I'm not saying our oh, marriage is kind of, you know, it's a bit irrelevant. No, 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 not at all. Um, but it's it's a, an outworking of a, a more foundational identity of who we are together in Christ. Totally. I, actually, that what you just said there, tease out. If you don't mind, I told you as a warning, I might have ask a a rhetorical or I hate the term devil's advocate because we don't Go like to talk it. about the devil on our show. <laughs> uh, but um, a question that I think would really help with compare and contrast, obviously we're Christian. Um, so if I was to ask you like um, if, if are there those, there are those people, there are people out there 
that are secular or non-Christian that will promote just singleness. Right. And, mm-hmm. and they might be might be based on our culture going, going back again to expressive individualism. How would you as a Christian actually disagree with somebody that's a non-Christian um, in your explanation of the meaning of singleness? Yeah, great question. I don't think I've been asked that before, so I love it, um, which means you're probably going to hear me verbally process the answer as I, I like go. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, really, a bit like ma- marriage, marriage is always marriage, whether it's between two Christians, two non-Christians, or a Christian and a non-Christian. Marriage is always marriage, just as singleness is always singleness. Um, but marriage and singleness both have theological purposes that are on display theoretically in, I think, any context in which it's done, but in which Christians have the privilege to very intentionally witness to. Um, and so, you know, even as I look at non-Christian marriages, I, you know, there's a sense in which, yes, that does point me, remind me of the marriage that's coming. I look at, you know, the relationship of a husband and a wife, but it's as I look at Christian marriages that I go, oh, that's the character of that. Hmm. That's the nature of, of what the relationship between Christ and the church is going to be like. Mm-hmm. In the same way, I think there's a sense in which that might be a little bit true of singleness. It's it's single Christian singles have the privilege and responsibility of exemplifying the character and the nature of what our relationships with each other are going to look like in eternity. Now, actually, you guys do too. Even as you're married, you're relating to me, not as your wife, but as your sister in Christ. Mm -hmm. So you are actually doing the same thing. But the fact that I'm not relating to anybody, any other Christian in any other way, I don't have a husband. I'm only relating to all other men as brothers Mm. um, means that actually there's something a bit more unique about the sense in which I'm able to point towards that because I don't have that exclusive marriage relationship. You can hear me, I'm verbally processing. So I'm going to come back to the point. Um, I think there is a real danger that we not look to secular singleness, to worldly singleness as the kind of singleness, the nature of singleness that's valued in scripture because just as kind of, to be honest, worldly marriage should not be the nature of marriage we look to where it's all about me. It's about meeting my needs. It's about feeling my fulfillment. It's about making it about what best serves me, whether it's married or singleness. Mm -hmm. That's not the biblical picture of marriage or singleness. Both of those are about how do we serve others? How do Mm -hmm. we love others? How do we point others towards Jesus? Mm -hmm. Um, And so Christian singles like myself should not be seeking to find what we emulate outside in the world around us. We actually come back to the pages of scripture and go, Mm. oh, that's what it is for me to live as someone who's not married as I point myself and others towards eternity. That was a bit rambly. Do you want to focus in at all? That is good. Yeah. Cause I I think it's, it's a helpful, helpful answer. That's not to say that Christians won't struggle with the same stuff that non-Christians will struggle with. It's, It's not as if like, if you're a Christian, you will never struggle with trying to please yourself. Oh it gosh, is, no! It is. It is. Uh, yeah, it's not like it's not that stark. I, I mean, as as married people and I'm, as as single people, I'm I'm sure our Christian listeners know it's not it's not that stark. Um, but we we do have a picture that we can look towards that may it's either not as clear or it's not there at all for for non Christians who they don't have a picture to look at, and so they're trying to figure this stuff on their own. And and yes, we will sin and we will 
look at ourselves and try to please ourselves, but we do have a picture that we are, mm. we're, we're given to say, Hey, this is, this is what this, this is what this Christian thing looks like. Also, we I want think to long, I was just going to say, we ought to long for our unmarried, sorry, our married non-Christian friends and our single non-Christian friends to know the beauty of what actually God's intention for those relationships are. But the only way that they will grasp that is if they first know Jesus. And that's mm-hmm. what unlocks that beauty. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it goes back to, too, that as a Christian who is single, and I put Christian first because that's the most important thing, um, fundamentally and practically your identity is in Christ and you're pointing to Christ. Your focus is on the church in Christ. <clears throat> As a non, if there, if you meet a non-Christian, um, atheist, culturally, just expressive individual in category that is single, they're pointing to themselves. Yeah. They're trying to fill again, that desire that inherently we know as image bearers that Lincoln, <clears throat> God can fill Romans one. But they're filling it, trying to fill it with other stuff themselves. Which is to say, Christians don't do the same. Like we, we will, we're still, we're still in culture. We're still affected by culture, right. but we, we have the Holy Spirit to yeah. point us. Um, so I wouldn't say it's yeah. stark, but I do think we have a picture. You see where I'm going, in. though. Yeah. Yeah, I think so, I think that's a it's a challenge to us to yeah. you know it, when when we make marriage as Christians about meeting my relational needs, yeah. about fulfilling me as a person. It's not that marriage does not is not capable of doing those things no but that's not what god has not the purpose, purpose of it. marriage for um just as you know singleness is capable of bringing great joy and fulfillment um but that's not the purpose of it the purpose of it is to be other centered person centered and god glorifying yeah cool so um i just i just got one more uh question it's kind of relating to the last one peter asked Again, if you can remember it. Um, so rhetorically again, are you saying singleness is better than marriage? <laughs> and uh, aren't you just reacting to the church's uh, lionization of marriage uh, in their own response to the breakdown of the family and culture? So how would you respond to that? Well, the first thing I would say is, no, I'm not saying that singleness is better than marriage. I will say that the Apostle Paul said that remaining <laughs> unmarried is better in a particular context. And right. I get nervous again every time I say that. I mean, it's God's word. It's divinely <laughs> authorized scripture. Yeah, we could be, we could be nervous, nervous, but like, it's just, it's so weird how Christians will just forget something's in the Bible. It's like, oh, okay. That's, I guess that's there. But we have to explain yeah. the context too. That yeah, way. Totally. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I, so without sort of wanting to delve too much into into that particular passage, there is a context, there is a passage, a, a scriptural passage in which singleness is not just good, but that Paul says, actually, it's better to remain single. He wishes everyone was unmarried as he was, even as he recognizes marriage is always a good thing and not everybody will remain unmarried. And there's good reasons for that. Um, the broader context there is, I think, an eschatological one. He recognizes yeah. that the present form of the world is passing away. Um now, having said that, that there is a you know part of scripture we need to grapple with and pretend doesn't exist. A bit like what we were going back to before with the pendulum, or to put it in a different way, we have to stop thinking about singleness and marriage as zero-sum games, where if you talk honorably and highly about one, 
you've got to be automatically diminishing the other. So as I sort Mm. of go, guys, I actually think that we as contemporary evangelical reformed Christians are missing out on part of God's goodness of singleness here and understanding that. That's not me saying, gosh, we have we have too high a view of marriage. It, you know, it's very possible for me to say we need to actually grapple with singleness without saying and stop thinking about marriage um, because actually both of them continue to be good and not just good but vital as we live in this creation in light of the one that's to come. Um, and so I think... Sing, those who are advocating for singleness from a biblical theological perspective have to be careful that we're not just being reactionary, mm-hmm. um, that we're not reacting to kind of what's going on in the church, but we're actually going, no, 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 I want to understand my place in this community, in God's future from scripture. But I think it means that married Christians also have to make sure they're not being reactionary and that they're not diminishing the significance of singleness in God's perspective because they feel like the world is trying to downplay marriage. Um, if if we can somehow approach these conversations thinking the best of each other as we go into them, as people mm. can read my book or listen to me or listen to other single Christians going, they're not trying to tear marriage down. I'm going to give them a work <laughs> on the assumption that they're not <laughs> trying to tear marriage down. They're actually trying to build it up. (laughs) Yeah, They're trying to build. That's right. Um, My book is much more about marriage than I ever expected it to be. (laughs) I was surprised how much there was. Yeah. Yeah. And you've read it. You know, it's not me going down on marriage, bar humbug with marriage. It's not at all. Um, So I think we just need to treat, we need to go into these conversations with willing to have good faith assumptions about each other. Ask the difficult questions. You know, there are going to be times when I am being reactionary. And so some reactionary is not always bad, but it can often be unhelpful. Mm-hmm. I want my friends, I want the people I'm engaging with to kind of go, oh, Danny, you know, where's that coming from? Let's chase that thought through. Um, but we we don't need to see these things as in competition. Marriage and singleness are not in competition in the church. They're actually in partnership. They're yeah. complementary to each other. I was just going to say, yeah, complementary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to come, build to each come other. full circle. <laughs> they build each <laughs> other up. How we started this is how we end this. Yeah. So yes. to uh, to land this plane, and this is both the, the end of your book, you talk about this, and I think it's it's also a helpful practical way to end this. And it's not just, okay, now we have this a better understanding of singleness, and now we're just going to kind of go on with our lives. But you, you talk about, um, both the unknowing ways and kind of the knowing ways the church can have all the best intentions, but either by sermon illustrations or by ministries or by uh, stuff that the church does, they unknowingly kind of uh, not push, but they just don't include um, mm. singles in, in a lot of this stuff or the, the wording is not um, kind of helpful for those who are singles. They're like, can I actually be part of this? Cause is this something that I'm, able to do or like I don't really I don't really mm. kind of engage with that that illustration or whatever it is application so um maybe some help on what can churches do not to just like kind of again swing the pendulum the other way and just now all talk about singleness mm. but how to um engage both married and singles as having the same um theological and or not same theological but same theological robustness 
mm. under under the church. Mm. Well, I mean, I think the first thing is what we've just been talking about, which is actually grapple with the theology of singleness. Um, we can do all we can change all sorts of things in practice, you know, and what we do in church. But if it's not going to be ungirded by a robust, solid base foundation, which is God's word and you know, good, solid theological thinking then it will just end up being a Band-Aid that kind of falls off at some point and doesn't actually bring about healing and and growth. Um, But having said so, never divorce the the love from Mm -hmm. the truth, the practice from the theology. Um, But there are all sorts of practical things that, you know, particularly those who are in church leadership um, might think about doing, or if you're listening and you're not in church leadership, you could talk to your church leaders about, Mm -hmm. um, you know, off the top of my head, a bunch of things. Spend a couple of months actually looking at how many times from the front of church uh, marriage, family, kids are spoken about versus how many times you might speak about things that are going on or sermon illustrations or something for those who aren't married. Now, again, please keep promoting. (laughs) Keep using family (laughs) illustrations. Keep promoting and advertising ministry. Don't just spend the next few months only talk about singles. Yes. And also, let me say here as well, if you're not in church leadership, don't do this as a test of your church leaders. Don't sit there (laughs) for three months and like with a clipboard, actually talk to them about and see if this is something that they would find a helpful thing to do. But just do a bit of a stock take. Hang on. How are we actually talking about these things? Um, What is the language that we're using? Um, You know, I mentioned it before. Have a look at even just how people are sitting in your church. Hmm. Who sits with who? Why? Who's sitting by themselves? Are they sitting by themselves every week for the same reason? Siri just came on on my computer, so I'm hoping this <laughs> yeah. is not going to start. Probably because it, it makes sense because it's Apparently been like. dictating everything I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm gonna try and... Is it, is it like married, what did is I it say? married couples or families sitting next to each other and singles sitting next to each other or people sitting like intermixed between each other? Yeah, that's right. You know, and why? Who's doing that? Who's Is it always the single person who is going to go up and say, can I sit with you? Um, You know, or, uh, you know, things like that. Um, As you look at your outreach as your evangelism, do you know the demographics of the community around you? You know, how many single unmarried people are in the the community in which you're Mm -hmm. actually seeking to reach out to? It is astonishingly low in the church. It is, yeah. I mean, I can tell you Australia will be completely different where you are, but, you know, where... Where in Australia, 25% of every house, house, so one in four houses in Australia has a solo occupant, solo adult occupant, which blew my mind that in any, on average, it's going to be different in cities in the country, but you look around, one in four houses has someone living alone in it. Um, That blew my mind. Uh, In the, in, in Australian statistics, roughly 50% of adults are not married. Now, whether they're in de facto relationships or whatever, I don't know, but roughly 50% are not married. Um, In church, we, you know, it's, it's less than half of that representation. There are married people in church, in our churches are massively proportionally overrepresented in our churches, apart from maybe widows and widowers certainly divorcees, heaps less divorcees in our churches than the world around us. So understand the community you're seeking to reach with the gospel Hmm. and then think about how does your community itself actually do that well 
um, you know, as you as you think about fostering relationships within your church communities, how do you help married people um, and families to make space for those who aren't married in their worlds? But also, how do you equip and encourage and, and resource unmarried people to make space in their lives for people who are married? How do you help them to take the initiative mm. rather than just sort of sitting at home waiting for someone to call them? Mm-hmm. All sorts of things. You know, it's going to be endless and it's going to depend on your circumstance, mm. but it's not going to happen unless we intentionally apply ourselves to the task. Yeah. That's really helpful. And not just ourselves, but our people. Bring yep. your people in church along with you on this. Yeah. Because so often it's married people bring in singles into their house. So it's like, oh, let me kind of do this favor for you. And that's all it's ever talked about versus, oh, why don't I go over to the single person's house? Because mm-hmm. it, yeah, it can kind of seem like, um, I got, like I'm an, I'm an add on and I'm, I'm, I'm invited. I'm never the one who invites people because maybe they don't want to come over to my place or whatever, whatever the, whatever the reason might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think this, I really do hope this, this book will go a long way. Um, and helping people think better about this, or if they've ever thought about this before, or to kind of recenter their thoughts, uh, or to think about it for the first time. Uh, and it really helped both crystallize and, and show me big blind spots uh, in my own life. And and so have you to thank for, and I'm sure others will have the, have the same thing. So um, Dr. Trevi, thank you so much for coming on, for talking about oh. this. This is this has been a long, but I think a really helpful and fruitful conversation that I really do hope our listeners take to heart and uh, and spread the good news of singleness. I mean, the good news of uh, good news of both, <laughs> both marriage and and singleness. The good news of the go- the good news of the gospel exactly, in marriage yeah. and singleness. I, I say I say that in jest. I know people are thinking. I know. Yeah, <laughs> people are, are thinking this stuff. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thanks so much, guys. I've had a lot of fun. Cool. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this week's book club episode where we spotlight a specific book from a publisher and an author that both Nick and I really enjoy. We don't always agree with everything that the author uh, or the book comes about, but what they do share with us is love for Christ and his gospel from whatever tradition they come from, whatever creedal tradition they come from or confessional tradition. uh, We all do share the same broader ecumenical Christian faith from different backgrounds, ethnicities, and, and denominations. Uh, we, we hope that these introduce books that you might not have heard of before, authors that you might not have heard of before. Um, I've been uh, really helped by learning about some of these. If you want to go to our show notes, find a link to the publisher. That helps them out a ton. A link to the author's page, to the book, to purchase it from the publisher themselves. It really helps them um, expose their work uh, through the publisher themselves. Yeah, and the value that we're bringing with these book clubs is you guys can really rely on us because as we all know, it takes a lot of time and effort to stay on top of all the books that are coming out and know which ones are probably good to look into, be recommended to read, look out for. And so these uh, these episodes are to whet your palate. You can We have already know that we're going to recommend this book, but you can um, listen to the episode yourself, get a little more understanding of the book and the author, and then go from there.
yeah so if you want to find these books and uh and purchase one for yourself purchase one for friends or family and also too if you can find us on apple spotify any podcast catcher rate and review us that's that's how we're that's how we're best known is how we kind of make ourselves known uh introduce these to a friend and and maybe just build your bookcase build your reading uh, read broader and and read really well all under the umbrella of our creedal faith under jesus christ